Hi, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with uh, Jeremy Katz. Jeremy, why don't you tell the internet what your job title is these days? Yeah, happy to. <laughs> My name is Jeremy Katz, and I am the Senior Director of Archives at the William Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum in Midtown Atlanta. Thanks so much for having me here today, Ben. This is a oral history disguised as a podcast. Um, every time I do one of these episodes, I think about an old professor of mine, Dr. Kuhn. I don't know if you remember. Oh, that. yeah. We have interviews that he did for in the Jewish community. He was fascinated by the Jewish community of Atlanta. Yeah, and he did he was. a series of interviews, and we have those in the archives. Actually, we're, our, our oral history collection is undergoing a 21st century makeover. Uh, our, this new catalog system we're using makes it text searchable so we can put in the transcripts and sync them to the media, time stamped and indexed and annotated. It's really, really revolutionizing the way that we're making our oral histories accessible and discoverable. It's pretty cool. Okay. So before I thought to hit record, um, ladies and germs, um, <laughs> we've gotten into some discussion about the, uh, your very first talk uh that you did i guess professionally with yes. with the jewish community would you mind t telling the internet that talk or yeah of course that was a very interesting experience i i just moved to atlanta less than a year than uh i've been here less than a year and i grew up outside the state outside the south uh in my formative years and and getting my education and uh, came to atlanta in 2013 to start working at the bremen and um, the executive director at the time was introducing a film at the Jewish film, Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's the largest uh, film festival in Atlanta and the largest Jewish film festival in the world. And so, um, you know, I've, it was a film about social justice and civil rights and Jewish involvement in it. And, um, you know, I, I, I he and uh, kind of in passing, I said, you know, there were Jew members of the Jewish community that were really furthered progress in the civil rights movement, but there are also some that were more traditional, more conservative. Uh, and I actually got heckled by the crowd. They said, no, you're wrong. And I was taken aback because uh, it's like my first speaking experience in the community and I was really nervous. And then I brought up, well, no, I've been learning about Leb's Deli. I've been learning about the sit-ins at Rich's department store. And uh, they quieted down really quick because I think that, you know, having that outside perspective and objectivity to the community's history is really important in a place where, you know, where there is that uh, kind of history that's steeped in some controversy, um, but also, you know, um, being able to come in and, and tell that story. I don't want to, you know, whitewash history. I want to be able to tell that story in its full uh, complexities and, and talk about these business owners that, you know, didn't want to integrate before anybody else integrated because they were businessmen and they didn't want to alienate their customer base. So um, that was a very uh, kind of telling moment in my career. I was like, wow, okay, the community needs to hear this history so that we can learn from it uh, and also celebrate the accomplishments too. There are great members of the Jewish community that furthered civil rights uh, that added tremendously to the fabric of general life in Atlanta, pillars of the Atlanta skyline and makeup of the community we're talking about like the high museum and gpb and um the uh henry grady memorial hospital emory georgia tech coca-cola all of those things when you think of atlanta they pay homage to the jewish community so 
Um, you know, I think telling the history in its fullness, all the good, bad, and the ugly is important because there's lessons to be learned from both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, the, one of the things, I mean, I've studied Atlanta for, this is my home. This is my family's home. My mother's people, as I've said on the mm -hmm. podcast, wandered into Northwest Georgia in about 1803 and they basically never left, <laughs> essentially. Um, what I say to people is that Atlanta is both one of the largest cities in northern North America and and a motley collection of farming villages. Yeah, that's right? about right. Yeah. People forget both. that it used to be like this small, weird mountain town. I think it still kind of is. Um, I, uh, one of my friends tells this stat that... Uh, the Brave Stadium is the third highest in elevation behind, um, you know, Denver. And I forget where the other one is, Sacramento or something weird like that. So, yeah, we're this, uh, pretty high up there. And, you know, yeah. it's this weird little mountain railroad town, frontier town that uh, is so easy to forget when you look at Atlanta today. Well, I mean, the weirdest thing to me is, and I guess I can still say this, I'm not really that old. And I have an uncle who is about in his 80s. And to hear him talk, like just the changes that happened in the last 60 years in terms of just everything, it would must be amazing to think of it, to, to have contemplated. Yeah, I've been, I've been framing Atlanta's Jewish, Atlanta's Jewish history and also Atlanta's general history kind of with three booms and three busts. So the three booms being those economic booms after the civil war, after the civil rights movement. And now we're in currently in one after the Olympics. Uh, and with those three booms, you saw a proliferation of Jewish activity, of congregations, of summer camps, day schools, um, social organizations, welfare organizations. Um, but then you also frame it too with three busts, the three instances of anti-Semitism, the lynching of Leo Frank, the temple bombing and the Emory Dental School. Uh, expulsion of Jewish students. So it's uh, where you are, kind of, you know, in the, especially in that last, those last two booms, the civil rights movement, after the civil rights movement, after the Olympics, I mean, it transformed Atlanta into, you know, basically unrecognizable from what it was, you know, before the civil rights movement. Uh, it's, yeah, those, the, that generation, that, the, uh, that greatest generation, they have seen Atlanta change like never that it had, you know, like never before, you know, it was a completely different town. People knew each other. Like it was a small town. Everybody kind of knew each other, you know, in, in the mid 20th century. Uh, and now today it's millions of people and the commu Jewish community is one of the largest in the world. It's uh, over a hundred thousand people. I didn't know that. I did not know yeah. that. Um, so, um, do you want to talk about, um, so you weren't here. So would one of the busts be now or? No, no. So we're going through a boom right now. You know, the bus, the, the last bust was, okay. uh, the temple bombing. Cause well, I would say the Emory dental school, uh, you know, that lasted up until the sixties, early sixties when they were deliberately expo expelling Jewish students from their, their dental school. Um, actually Emory apologized for that in 2012. 
So some people bookend Leo Frank, the Leo Frank lynching with the Emory Dental School apology in 2012. Some people bookend it with the Temple bombing in 1958 because of the outpouring of support for the community following the bombing. Uh, I think we're going through a renaissance right now. Uh, we're seeing a massive proliferation of every uh, of Jewish organizations and life that you know cater to every aspect. Uh, of Jewish life. You know, we've seen the proliferation of festivals. I mentioned the film festival. There's also the Jewish music festival, the Jewish life festival, the kosher barbecue. Um, I mean, there, there, so many congregations have popped up uh, um, catering to every sect of Judaism. And uh, it's, it's really, we're going through kind of a, this golden age in Atlanta of Jewish life. Uh, and as Atlanta, you know, continues to grow and bring more and more people to Atlanta, we see the Jewish community growing, bringing in new people with new ideas and new and different backgrounds and adding to that diverse fabric of the Jewish community. So, no, I think we're going through quite a, a heyday in Atlanta Jewish history. Well, what I mean, what I meant was the economic uh, bust or the economic. Oh, uh, from the pandemic. <laughs> Well, yeah, from the pandemic, but also like, so there was the Great Recession or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. which I kind of think sort of changed the borders of Atlanta. It sort of, it kind of put the brakes on the suburban expansion for a while. That's um, true. Yeah. yeah, there was that slowdown in 2008. And I think the pandemic too is definitely put the, you know, pumped the brakes a little bit because Atlanta was, you know, kind of pedal to the metal. Uh, particularly right before the pandemic. I mean, it was like a runaway train uh, of growth in Atlanta. I think it slowed it, pumped the brakes a little bit, but I think it's going to bounce back in a really big way. Uh, as long as, you know, people get vaccinated and the, the variants stay at bay. Um, I, I think that there's going to be a massive resurgence. I mean, that's Atlanta, a resurgence. Uh, well, we're I all mean, about rising yeah. from the ashes. This, this city is... Um... To me, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating mix of uh, um, energy coming from not just from the inside, but from the outside. But also you have sort of this, like you have this tension where you have people, families that have been here forever, sort of the traditional families that have been here forever and and things. Do you see that where maybe you have um, in your community, in the Jewish community, where you have sort of the intermixing of um, kind of the more traditional Southern elements with the more progressive, um, I guess, urban elements or outsider elements or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I mean, being an outsider myself, I, you know, I came down here and there are, there definitely is that old guard in the Atlanta Jewish community of those families that have been here really since the incorporation of the city and the founding of the first Jewish congregations. Um, they've, they've stayed and they, this is their community and they feel very attached to it. Um, and we, we have a lot of their family history in the archives. And so I am the um, steward of their family history. So it's a great responsibility. And I love working with those families because they're so uh, passionate about Atlanta's Jewish history, and they know how much this Jewish community has contributed to the city. And so they're very much so engaged in everything that we do and very active at the museum. Um, They really have been uh, some of our greatest supporters. 
Um, but there's also this new wave of, of fresh blood into Atlanta's Jewish landscape. I think that's with the decline of the Rust Belt and the rise of the Sun Belt. Um, Atlanta's a, become a, and it's also a, a drain of the smaller towns throughout the South into the larger cities like Atlanta, um, mm. chasing those economic opportunities because Atlanta is such a boom town, has been before and is today. Um, and, and I think that that uh, part of that is because of how progressive Atlanta is. It's an island of blue and a sea of red. Um, that's been the way, you know, the true for since the civil rights days and William Hartsfield, you know, coining Atlanta as a city too busy to hate. Um, he kind of cast aside the, um, you know, the prejudices and intolerance and said, you know, we're a city that, is against that and we, we're for progress and for business we're open for business and i think that's what set atlanta apart from other southern towns like birmingham birmingham was actually bigger than atlanta um in the yeah. mid 20th century um but we outpaced them because of uh you know we were more progressive than they were and so we got things like the airport which was a big deal it brought basically the same thing that happened for the railroads in you know that incorporated atlanta bringing all that entrepreneurial trailblazers and raw goods through Atlanta. Same thing now with, with the airport, um, bringing all those, you know, being a, a hub in the Southeast where all that, those materials and people are traveling through, bringing new ideas and, and resources with them. So um, it's a combination of, of a lot of different factors. Uh, convenient geography doesn't hurt either, you know, being that first piece of flat land south of the Appalachian Mountains um, that connects Georgia, you know, being that kind of point that connects Georgia, the entire state with the rest of the country. Uh, all those raw goods are kind of going through Atlanta. And so um, those same forces that have always made Atlanta into this really uh, um, sought after place to come and do business uh, logistically and um, the mentality here, the, the um, progressiveness of the city uh, those factors have always been here, have always been here since its founding and continues till today. Um, so we're, that's one of the reasons why I love this city. I think it's so vibrant and diverse. Um, it has a lot to offer to the general community and to the Jewish community. So for me personally, I think it's a great place to live. I really enjoy living here and learning about the community's history inside and out. Um, and, and stewarding this amazing collection that we have at the Bremen Museum. We have the largest repository for Jewish history in Georgia, not only in terms of its diversity of content and formats, but also its timeline, its chronology. We have materials dating back to colonial America, documenting the earliest Jewish community in Savannah up until the pandemic and John Ossoff's historic victory in the Senate. We have have, we have things from that. Were the... Were the materials in Savannah or from Savannah, were they moved to Atlanta because of environmental purposes or, or why? Yeah, that, that was a, um, that was a huge coup for the Bremen museum to receive the Savannah Jewish archives in 2015. They are being housed at on deposit at the Georgia historical society. It's 200 linear foot feet that document the rich Jewish history of Chatham County and Savannah, which dates back to 1733. And um, we, the, the reason the Savannah Jewish Archives Board 
decided to move the collection out of the Georgia Historical Society is because it was on deposit and they were paying fees to keep it on deposit at that repository. Um, and they, um, they just weren't exactly uh, doing everything they possibly could to make that history available to the public. So, you know, they were kind of a small fish in a big pond. The Georgia Historical Society has a lot of collections across you know, that span across the uh, religious spectrum, across the social spectrum, across every, you know, documenting a, the full tapestry of, of life in Georgia. And so coming to the Bremen Museum, where we focus on Jewish history and want to tell that story as, as, as much as possible, they were a big fish in a small pond. And so um, we have successfully cataloged basically almost everything in that collection. We still have some oral histories to transcribe and some photographs to catalog. But for the most part, all that those collections are available online. Um, it's a really amazing collection. Um, we also one of the other also attractive things about us is that we're also a museum. We're not just an archive; we're a museum, and we have three galleries that we use to tell the story of Jewish life in Georgia and the Southeast. And so um, our next big exhibition that we're creating is opening up this fall. Um, it's called History with Chutzpah, and it's going to feature items from the Savannah Jewish archives. So there's also there were opportunities for us to display the Savannah Jewish archives in a really meaningful way and make it presentable to the public. Um, we're also just doing a lot of other cool things. We launched a Google Arts and Culture page where we want to have online exhibitions about Savannah's history. Um, we have a new oral history catalog that's really revolutionizing the way that media, audiovisual content is being cataloged and made it discoverable. And so we're putting their oral histories up in there. It's uh, so we're we're on the cutting edge of the field of uh, in terms of the archives and the museum world. And so it was a very attractive. Um, we, we, you know, we made a very attractive persuasive argument to the Savannah Jewish Archives Board. It kind of came down to between us, the University of Georgia, and the Tra College of Charleston. Uh, and we were able to make the best argument. And so we are the proud home of the Savannah Jewish Archives. And we're fortunate to receive uh, allocation funding from the Savannah Jewish Federation to continue to preserve and, and make the collections accessible. Yeah. So like I mean I remember when I when I was in Savannah at the the Catholic diocese they had to mm -hmm. there was a lot of mold that yeah. you have to deal with all the time yeah down there in Savannah um so I was thinking maybe it had to do with that but I think that also doesn't hurt you know Savannah's uh, you know, subject to hurricanes and flooding and humid temperatures. Um, so yeah, coming up to Atlanta, uh, like I said, the elevation here, you know, we're, we're, we stave off a lot of those natural disasters, get a tornado every so often, but for the most part, you know, natural disasters are fairly limited in Atlanta. And so the, it makes preservation of historic content a lot more uh, realistic, I guess you could say. Well, a lot easier, I guess. And a lot easier, yeah. I wonder if I wonder if Atlanta is going to be one of these cities that has uh, climate refugees. You know. From... Oh, that's a good point. That that might drive in a whole another wave of boom to Atlanta. You know, all these refugees from yeah. climate crisis, if the water levels rising in Florida and along the coast come up to Atlanta, that could be a whole new another boom in the city. Is history right? I mean, I'm. 
whether you think it's man-made or not, it it is actually happening. And here we are, you know, I think we're the high, one of the highest cities in the world for population. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty high elevation. You know, it's it's one of the things that people don't think about when they think about Atlanta, but we have pretty high elevation, which, uh, I think, you know, is a benefit in that case. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, like I say, I've been studying this town for a, a long time, and I don't think, I think if we were the same elevation Macon was, or is, I don't think we would be as big as we are. I think elevation plays a, a big role in how big we are, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, Macon is hot. <laughs> yeah. Macon's really hot. And so is Savannah, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Savannah is really hot, too. I think, yeah, it also helps cool off the city a little bit, provide a little bit of relief from that sunbelt heat. Yeah. So I think you've delved into it a little bit, but do you want to juxtapose uh, where you grew up with Atlanta or that? the? Yeah. No, there's a lot of similarities and differences between Jewish life in the Midwest and Jewish life in the South. I grew up in Ohio, born and raised. And actually one of the first, my first experiences of working in the archives museum world was curating an exhibition about Jewish life in central Ohio. And there's some, um, it, there's certainly some generalizations that you can make about Jewish life throughout you know, kind of the frontier, early American Jewish history, you know, the, 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 the earliest Jews typically were peddlers, meaning they would get like a pack of goods lent to them by a businessman and they would peddle those goods throughout the countryside. And once they saved up enough capital, they would settle in a town that was hospitable enough for them and open a shop typically, you know, in the arena, what they peddled and what they knew best. So if they peddled rags, they went into the textile business. If they, peddled uh, chemicals, they went into the chemical industry. If they peddled um, dry goods, they went into the department store business. And some of these people, some of these businesses really grew into industry leaders, uh, which is fascinating to itself. Um, There's also the generalization that um, uh, of, uh, of disproportionate contribution to the towns in which they settle. Um, so in Atlanta, I mentioned those things earlier, but the early Jewish community, you know, uh, helped, uh, create Henry Grady Memorial Hospital, helped create Georgia Tech, helped create Emory. Um, the first nonprofit in the state of Georgia was a Jewish organization called the Hebrew Orphans Home. Um, and that was true in Ohio too, uh, really disproportionate contributions, um, you know, Fleischmann's and Frank's Red Hot, things like that, that, um. Uh, uh, have added to the the um, that disproportionate contribution to Jewish life in in Ohio and the Midwest. Um, there's also the correlation of uh, experiences of anti-Semitism. I think that's true too. I mean, it's always kind of underneath the surface. Whenever there's rapid times of change, uh, you um, typically see that anti-Semitism come to light, uh, and that's kind of true throughout the country. Um, but there's also some some differences as well in the South. Uh, I think Jew, members of the Jewish community were able to thrive in ways that Jews from other in other parts of the country were not able to because the social lines are drawn by color of skin rather than religion. And, and uh, most Jews, uh, a lot of a lot of Jews uh, in around the world come from 
Europe, from Europe and have lighter skin. And so they pass as members of the white community. And so um, using that to their full advantage, they were able to succeed in, in business, politics, social life in ways that um, Jews from other parts of the country really weren't able to succeed. So I think there is an extra uh, added layer to Jewish life in the South. Um, but there's also that interesting perspective on civil rights that I think you get in the South that you don't get elsewhere. You know, being members of the Jewish community, having, you know, experienced anti-Semitism or, you know, having relatives that had to escape pogroms in Russia or escape the Holocaust uh, in Germany and in, in, in Europe um, or anti-Semitism around the world coming to America, they sympathize with the black, plight of the black community and other minorities that have been marginalized. And so you saw, um, you know, I, I think a, a disproportionate contribution to the civil rights movement in supporting the, you know, minority communities. And I think that continues today. There's a lot of Jewish organizations that all are all about combating hate in all forms, particularly the Anti-Defamation League, American Jewish mm -hmm. Committee, uh, the list goes on. I mean, there's a number of Jewish organizations that focus on activism. Um, and I think that's true. That's also true throughout the rest of the country that uh, not just in the South, but, you know, Jews have always kind of been this uh, community that says, you know, we, if, if we're, if anyone in our community is experiencing hatred, then it's just a matter of time before it's going to translate to the Jewish community. And so, we need to, if, if one of us is being marginalized, all of us are going to be marginalized. And so taking action against that um, discrimination, uh, I think that's also a, something that can be, you know, is true throughout the country as well as in Atlanta. So I think that there's a lot of generalizations you can make about in comparative um, in comparisons between these communities, the benevolence, the, the origins, um, uh, the contributions, but also I think there's some some unique differences about Jewish life in Atlanta and, and, and throughout the South too. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um. Do did the did the Jewish community in Atlanta did they have a role in registering people to vote or like that? Yeah, there's a lot of organizations that are about uh, are um, heavily focused on that. Uh, National Council of Jewish Women, American Jewish Committee, um, the, the federation movements, uh, federations from around the, the country, um, they oftentimes do a lot of that type of activism of getting people out to the polls. Um, and, uh, you know, of those, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the civil rights activists that were murdered. Um, they, they were also Jewish, the ones that were murdered in Mississippi, I think. Um, forgetting their names, but you know, the, the kind of it goes back to um, I think Cheney and Swerner or something like that. Oh gosh, I have to look that up. Um, but um, yeah, there's definitely been a strong role of the Jewish community of po political action, of social action, of it, uh, basically uh, wherever we have this principle in Judaism called tikkun olam, it means repair the world. Mm -hmm. And wherever we see that the world is broken and needs to be repaired, that's one step closer to achieving, you know, getting back to the Garden of Eden. So, yeah, the Garden of Eden, of Eden was, um, uh, was broken. And so it is our 
task to repair it back to that uh, standard of living. Hmm. Let me ask you, um, I would be sued for malpractice if I didn't ask you this. I'm almost sure. Um, so there's, there's the principle where, um, people, um, Jewish people go to Chinese restaurants, um, during, um, holidays, right? Uh huh. So here's a parallel and here's a parallel, right? So in Atlanta, we have today, we call them, I think we call them soul food restaurants. Yeah. Um, Believe it or not, that's a new term. Um, I always just remember them being called food. <laughs> you know, growing up, they were just called food. Um, <laughs> now it's a whole on genre, you know? Now it's an entire genre. So, but I'm talking specifically about Southern food prepared by African-Americans for African-Americans predominantly. And what I'm wondering is, did the was there a tradition in, in Atlanta of the Jewish people going to what we would today call soul food restaurants during the holidays or, or not? During the holidays, it is kind of that tradition to go to a Chinese restaurant because typically that those were the only restaurants that were open over the holidays, particularly Christmas, because you know, the Asian community doesn't celebrate Christmas. And so they weren't um you know they they are of other faiths typically and so their restaurants were open on christmas and so it just kind of and also the movie theater too so the movies going getting chinese food and going to the movies was this kind of tradition that started because those are the only two things that were open on christmas and jews don't celebrate christmas so um that was what people did uh, and so that kind of grew into this kind of quasi tradition uh, in the Jewish community. And it's more just kind of a funny, fun thing to do. It's, you know, it's not like steeped in any tradition, you know, religious ideology or tradition or nothing like that. Well, it wasn't ideology, but Dr. Kuhn, um, again, to bring Dr. Kuhn back into this, uh, Dr. Kuhn said ages ago, this was sort of a solidarity thing. This had grown into a solidarity thing between. Oh, interesting. Asian food and, and Jewish people. Oh, so yeah. I was, wonder- yeah. I'm, I was wondering if there was a solidarity thing between the soul food and the Jewish community. Um, I haven't seen a connection between soul food and the Jewish community. I have seen, yeah. you know, solidarity between the black and Jewish community in terms of, you know, pushing voting rights. And and that's a particularly a big one. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a black Jewish coalition that was formed in the 80s by the American Jewish Committee to renew the Voting Rights Act. Um, there's a, a lot of interfaith work going on um, uh, between the black and Jewish communities. Yeah. Um, you know, this, even more recently with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, we saw the mm-hmm. partnership between the two of them as they ran for the Senate seats in Georgia. Um, in terms of like the Asian community and the Jewish community, I mean, I think it's kind of become kind of like a joke, you know, the, the, the Christmas, you know, uh, members of the Jewish community go into, and I think it's honestly spread to the rest of, to other people who are not, uh, don't practice Christmas or even if they do, they sometimes even, they still go out to a Chinese restaurant and it's really hard to get into a Chinese restaurant on Christmas now because it's like their biggest day of the year, whoever's not yeah. celebrating and every, you know, you go in and it's like, you see all your friends and family at the Jewish, you know, 
at the at the uh, uh, Chinese restaurant uh, because it's just full yeah. of members of the Jewish community on Christmas. It's really kind of funny. Um, yeah. And there's been some great, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, funny memes and people, you know, there, uh, there are like been signs put up by owners of the Chinese restaurant welcoming Jews into their establishment on Christmas and things like that. So I think that they, the Chinese, the Asian community has also kind of played into it and think it's kind of a, you know, a funny tradition. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to when I was, um, when I went to college up in the mountains, uh, there was a really good Chinese restaurant in town that we used to go to a lot because it was, it was so good. Did you uh, go there on Christmas? No, I wasn't there on Christmas, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people were, and they said that they got folks. Um, I'm sure it got really busy that day. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it did. God, I still remember their Mongolian beef. Lordy Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Extra MSG. Actually, that's why we didn't go there, because they didn't have MSG. Oh, okay. Yeah, you got to have that monosodium glutinate, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine from one of my best friends from college was was insanely allergic to MSG, like oh. really, really allergic. Yeah. So mm. anyway, yeah. But um, I think you might have touched on this earlier, but let me dive into it more specifically. Um, what do you think? Where do you see Atlanta growing? Um, or first of all, do you see Atlanta growing? That's a that's a question. And where? If you do, in what yeah, I do. What I, directions I, or what industries or yeah, I do see Atlanta growing um, all the time. I mean, in every it seems like in every direction Atlanta is growing, and I think it's also going inwards too. Uh, I think that kind of that white flight of the seventies and eighties uh, is rebounding, and we're seeing um, in town growing in ways that I you know it, it wasn't growing. Uh, back after integration uh we're seeing that boom of in town especially with the belt line the that walkway a pedestrian walkway that's going to eventually encircle in the inner city um um it, particularly with you know organiz- uh corporations like microsoft and amazon making investments in atlanta uh recently um you know it, it seems like atlanta is growing in every direction in terms of its uh, business life, um, in terms of social life, there's all sorts of new uh, restaurants, bars, um, organizations that connect people and offer all sorts of different programs. Um, it, really, every aspect of life, I feel like it has grown. You know, obviously, this last year, it's been a little bit more challenging for organizations and corporations and and every every aspect of life to grow because the pandemic kind of put a pause i've heard of people calling it the great pause um this epic this uh last year has been kind of everything just has kind of stopped but now that vaccines are, are um becoming more common i'm already starting to see i live right on the belt line and I'm already starting to see it become close to what it was before the pandemic. I mean, right before the pandemic, it was a zoo. There were so many people 
especially on the weekends. Like I couldn't even ride my bike on it. It was just too many people. You couldn't even get around people. Um, and starting to get back to that. Um, but I think it's going to be gradual. I think people are still hesitant. Um, I think the work environment has changed too. I think there's a less focus on less of a focus on in office, um, uh, working environment and more like working remote environments. I think that that might change the landscape of, you know, the kind of traditional office buildings that you where see in a downtown. Sorry, go ahead. Where people, I, I'm thinking that might change where people live. Um, yeah, that's true too. Yeah. And like, we see people like that have that, that are based out of like DC and or New York coming to live in Atlanta because they can work remotely and they're getting that same salary that they're getting, you know, at, they're getting the same level of salary that they're getting in DC or New York and bringing that salary to Atlanta. And that's also kind of, uh, that's great for them because there's a lower cost of living here, but it's also raising the cost of living in Atlanta because they're bringing all this capital with them and injecting it in here. And it's raising the prices of everything else. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, I think that we're going to see more of that going on as remote work becomes more accepted uh, and I also think that's going to lead to more people moving further out from, uh, you know, not having to work in the city, may not have to live close in the city. They can live a little bit further out uh, where it's more affordable to live um, because they can, you know, they don't have to commute in every day. Or if they have like a, a flex schedule where they have to only commute in a couple of days and work remotely a couple of days. Um, I think we're I think that's going to f- further expand the city, too. Um, yeah, I have to see, I'm seeing more and more expansion, especially on the West side of Atlanta, mm. which traditionally was a more, um, yeah, a commercial area a corp- with, um, manufacturing. Um, and we're, uh, I've seen a lot more growth over there in terms of more residential and social life offerings. So uh, I think, uh, Atlanta is uh you know certainly has been hit by the pandemic but um Mm. i think it's going to live up to its name with the full resurgence and really just every aspect of life um like atlanta has done for generations i mean it's really uh caters to every aspect of life and has a full diversity of offerings well i mean it's funny um you talk about in-town growth, and I, I certainly would see that. I mean, for sure. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I just looked at the census data, um, or at least the preliminary data. Um, and, like, the, the far northern counties of Metro Atlanta have, have experienced, you know, explosive growth in in these last 10 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, just I think it's going to be where whatever you want to live, however you want to live is how what's going to happen. I mean, you can yeah. find, if you want to live in the suburbs, you can find that. If you want to live out in the rural areas or rural-ish area, you can find that. If you want to live in what I used to call Friendsville, where, where you live and where I, yeah. I used to live, <laughs> that's <laughs> after the show, that. by the way. <laughs> you can find that. I love but, that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's growing in all directions and also yeah. back inwards too. I mean, it's really, it's an exciting yeah. time to live in Atlanta. Well, and it's been that way my whole life that I can remember. I mean, I remember being a kid and I'd pass by the Darlington sign, 
which is an apartment, I'd pass by the Darlington sign and it would have 4 million people. Yeah. And people used yeah. to think, wow, that's a lot of people. And that's yeah. amazing. I can't believe that. And and now it's, I think they'll own up to seven and a half. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how it's exponentially grown in Atlanta. I mean, it's, and there's no signs of it really slowing down, even with the pandemic. I mean, it's still no, a boom town. It's not going to slow down. I don't see that. No. No. But the reason I asked you if you think mm-hmm. it is growing is because I talk to people all over the planet and all over the country. And when you when you talk to folks yeah. in the rural areas, they have they paint the opposite picture. Mm-hmm. Contraction. Yes. You know. No, that's a good point. And that's true uh, throughout the South, especially. I mean, you even though it's the rise of the Sun Belt, we're seeing this, you know, this decline in the small towns and uh, Atlanta is cannibalizing uh, a lot of the small towns in the area because they're just getting outbid for job opportunities. And so you see that this is an issue in the Jewish community, actually, in this, they formed a Jewish community legacy project here in Atlanta through the Federation to go to these small towns and collect the Jewish history in them because they're disappearing. There literally are no Jews left in some of these towns. And they once had very rich Jewish communities, um, thriving Jewish communities. And so this um, project went into these small towns and would collect the Jewish history and and religious objects um, and transport them to archives like ours or others around the country. And that's not just in the South. They went around the entire country where all these small towns were kind of disappearing and uh, at least the Jewish community uh, was disappearing. And, and that's kind of true. Um, it, it, it's, it's sad in a way because some of these Jewish communities, you know, they had, you know, Jewish owned businesses for generations. And then, you know, of course, you always want your child to succeed and be more successful than you. And so they would go in, you know, go get an education and get a great job opportunity in one of these big cities like Atlanta. And so they weren't coming back to these small towns to run the family businesses. Uh, and so a lot of these Jewish owned family businesses disappeared because of that prosperity. I mean, they were being offered this, these great opportunities to uh, live a better life than their parents. And, um, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Again, you know, you're, you want your family to succeed and your children to be happy and succeed. But at the same time, you're kind of losing that Jewish community that Jewish owned business that's you know existed for generations, passed down from generation to generation, and uh, you know it dries up in a generation because of opportunities that are presented in boom towns like Atlanta. So it's very yeah. interesting to see what's going on. Yeah, I mean, and you talked a, a second ago about the outsourced. I mean, the outsourced, outsized uh, Jewish influence in society and there's a part of me that wonders if part of that is because like when you had the rise of fascism in europe you had a lot of very college educated people who were able to escape and to come to america so you know i mean Mm -hmm. i used to know i i knew a man who was studying to be a physicist or something like that and he ended up having a pretty outsized impact in the television world Mm. in the formative Mm. years of the television world. Um, 
Yeah, yeah the ban- the brain drain of, of Europe during the Nazi period, the brain drain of, of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Um, you know that led to an influx of uh, very bright uh, people coming to America, and I think that was a as a a good thing for American society to receive these very talented, educated people. Uh, and that was especially with the Jewish community. I mean, uh, we not to brag or anything, but we have like the uh, for dis- a very disproportionate number of Nobel laureates, um, much larger. It's like 20 percent, even though we constitute like less than half a percent of the overall world's total population. Uh, and a part of that is due to just the way that um, Judaism works. So we're taught at a very young age to read. Um, you know, you have to be be prepared for your bar or bat mitzvah. You have to be able to read from the Torah. So not even just reading in your native language, unless you live in Israel or Hebrew is your native language. You're going to be learning an, uh, another, a second language. Um, and you have to be able to read that from a script. Uh, and so, and also Judaism is really all, is very entrenched in asking questions and being inquisitive. That's a, a, a very important thing in Jewish tradition. Uh, and so, um, the, being that, ha- asking lots of questions, being inquisitive, being literate, um, at a, from a very young age and being encouraged to do that. Um, mm. I think that that plays a huge part in, um, you know, having the faculties, to contribute in, in a disproportionate way that is far outside of the the general population. Well, that's be- I mean because when you learn in a language at a young age, you're firing a whole other part of the brain. Exactly. So right. So, huh? Yeah. Okay. No, I get that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I wish there was. I don't. I haven't read any studies about that. But that's my own kind of. Um, I have summary. I have, yeah. Yeah. When you te- when you take bilingual children, bilingual children are normally do better in school because they're firing a different part of the brain. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean it makes yeah. sense because they're learning a whole other, you yeah. know, they have to think in another language and and right. that uh, expands their uh, worldview too. I think in a way. Well, also, yeah, because when you're looking at translation, I mean. Translation, yeah, it's about vocabulary, but it's more about concepts, you know, like if the the German letter might not have, like the German correspondence doesn't really have the concept of this English word that I have mm-hmm. in my head, but I need to give it that English word. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely helps. I think expand yeah. your, your mind a little bit. Think critically. Yeah, yeah. Um. Did you, and before I let you go, again, don't want to get sued for malpractice. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, um, did you want to talk about um, the, the, correspond, the, the rise of fascism as seen in the, the letters of correspondence and how the general tone of those letters and, or not? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great question, uh, and that's I, I think you've seen a lot of that too with uh, your work translating. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been a huge help in you know making those letters accessible to a wider audience. 
Um, we are very fortunate to have in our archives a large collection of materials from Holocaust survivors who settled in Atlanta and the surrounding region. And we have a lot of letters that they wrote between um, themselves and family members that were still trapped in Europe, um, you know, finding ways to try to get them over to the States. And actually the, the local Jewish Federation here in Atlanta helped help with that. Lots of different organizations, HIAS, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, Joint Distribution Community Committee. Um, there were a lot of Jewish organizations that were working with um, members of the Jewish community to get their families out of Europe. They, I think a lot of them saw the writing on the wall. Um, and so we do have an extensive amount of correspondence from these members of the Jewish community to their family members in Europe. And so you kind of see this as, as uh, the 1930s um, progress uh, becoming more and more desperate. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really tragic to see, uh, you know, these are letters from people that were ultimately exterminated by the Nazis. Um, a lot of them didn't get out. It was very, especially as the 1930s and once 1939, once the war started, it was really, really hard to get out of Europe because the border shut down. Uh, you basically had to do it, um, under, you know, in a, uh, in a very, uh, secretive way of getting across the borders. Uh, and so, um, in a clandestine way. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's really sad to read some of those letters um, because, you know, in a lot of cases, they didn't make it out. Um, but they're, they're a really important tool for us to use to educate the next generation um, about tolerance and acceptance and combating anti-Semitism and also Holocaust denial. Um, we're seeing a rise of both anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, and I think that's a big part of our mission. Uh, the mission of the, the Bremen Museum is connect people to Jewish history, culture, and arts. And we do that through our three galleries. Our main gal uh, our, uh, our, one of our galleries is a Holocaust exhibition that was designed by a Holocaust survivor. He got out, but he, he was a child survivor, but a lot of his family didn't get out. And we have some correspondences in his collection. Um, and we do it through public programming. We have a whole Holocaust education department that does curriculum does tours of the gallery, arranges Holocaust survivor speakers to talk to um, school students. Um, it really is a multi-pronged approach. Uh, and through the archives, you know, using those, we are, you know, those primary sources, we are on the front lines of combating you know, people that deny that the Holocaust happened. Well, we have physical objective proof that it happened through imagery, through correspondence, through documents, uh, you name it, we have physical proof that it happened. And so we take it as a great responsibility to make those collections as accessible as possible. One of the ways that we did that this last year, we took advantage of the pandemic and overhauled our entire collection catalog system to industry standard. And then actually in the case of oral histories, industry leading. Uh, in ways that we're making our collections more discoverable than ever before. We're sharing all the, the collection catalog information with the Digital Library of Georgia to, and Jewish Gen to further expand our reaches uh, and offer our, our materials and make them more discoverable to genealogists, to researchers, to students, to teachers, to 
filmmakers, everyone that's interested. We hope that if they can find our materials with a simple Google search, that they're going to learn about us. They're going to learn about Jewish history. They're going to learn about you know, tragedies like the Holocaust, but also contributions that Jews have made to towns and say, wow, uh, having a Jewish community in my city is a great thing because it's going to bring the, the community is going to bring prosperity and diversity to my community. And so combating anti-Semitism through those means as well. Mm. I mean, the thing that would strike me mm -hmm. over and over again, like over and over and over again in all those letters is there was always usually, yeah. especially if it was the first letter of a series, there was like yeah, this always this period of like yeah. I never thought this was going to happen. It happened so fast. Well, I have to remember too that like Germany had experienced well, a golden age in uh, Jewish life. I mean, they I, were cultured, they were assimilated. Germany was this place that you know it was the place for yeah. science and math and arts. Mm. Um, you know, they never thought that something so horrific mm. could happen mm. in a place mm. like that. And so it's a, it's a really, it's a really important lesson that yeah. it can happen again anywhere. Um, so we constantly, well, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, the thing, yeah, the thing I, uh, the thing that I think when I did my podcast on the Spanish flu, the thing I think that pushed anti-semitism and fascism over the edge was before the spanish flu there were people that thought yeah. that like you and i were different biological creatures right because i'm a i'm a christian and you're a jewish person they thought they literally thought we were different biological creatures and after the Spanish flu, they didn't, they couldn't think that anymore. And that really yeah. pushed a lot of, I think great times, you know, rapid change. Um, and we're seeing rises of anti-Semitism right now because of COVID-19. A lot of people, you know, cause of Israel, Israel's kind of leading the way in vaccinations. They've uh, vaccinated a higher percentage per capita than any other country. Mm. Um, and so it's, it, there's really interesting parallels and correlations between the rise of anti-semitism and rapid change particularly with this lot this pandemic but also the social injustices that have taken place uh and civil unrest that's going on in america right now social reckoning uh mm -hmm. america is going through a time of rapid change and that is typically when you see that anti-semitism bubble up to the surface fortunately mm -hmm. you know we have organizations like the anti-defamation league and uh, others that are very vigilant. They keep really great analytics and stats and resources, um, lobbying power in Washington and, and, and mm -hmm. legislators around the country um, that they are reaching and, and educating so that, you know, that the Holocaust never happens again or anything like that can never happen again. So I think that, you know, we're definitely better equipped today than we were during the 20th century and all the instances of anti-Semitism that took place then. Um, but it's still, you know, we still, uh, we need to be as vigilant as possible. The Bremen Museum, we want to educate as many people as possible. 
uh, through a, you know, a mass audience, through research, through every possible means that we possibly can to fulfill our mission and, and create a more inclusive, diverse, and accepting world. And um, I guess, um, yeah, um, if you're interested in the Bremen Museum, go to www.thebremen.org. You can explore our collection catalog uh, and our archival content that we have available online. You can check out our Google Arts and Culture page, which is a soft launch last year. We're doing a hard launch coming up soon on our uh, page. You can also uh see our upcoming events we are constantly holding right now virtual events uh one day we'll be back to in person um, we also just opened our doors to the public for the first time in a year which is very exciting so if you are local or visiting atlanta uh you can now visit us we're open on sundays only uh for a little bit um and so you can get your ticket online to come and see the the museum in person should you uh, be so inclined Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Hang on the line while this thing downloads. <laughs>